Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Scott Carney is an investigative journalist and anthropologist, and has worked in some of the most dangerous and unlikely corners of the world. His work blends narrative nonfiction with ethnography. His 2018 book, What Doesn't Kill Us, How Freezing Water, Extreme Altitude, and Environmental Conditioning Will Renew Our Lost Evolutionary Strength, was a New York Times bestseller. His other works include The Vortex, The Wedge, The Red Market, and The Enlightenment Trap. Carney was a contributing editor at Wired for five years, and his writing appears in Mother Jones, Men's Journal, Playboy, Foreign Policy, Discover, Outside, and Fast Company. His work has been the subject of a variety of radio and television programs, including on NPR and National Geographic TV. In 2010, he won the Payne Award for Ethics and Journalism for his story Meet the Parents, which tracked an international kidnapping to adoption ring. Carney has spent extensive time in South Asia and speaks Hindi. He currently lives in Denver, Colorado, where he is also the CEO of Fox Topus Inc. Scott Carney, what an honor it is to welcome you to Boundless Body Radio. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Dude, we have had some really interesting guests on this show, uh, people that I definitely look up to and have led very interesting lives. But I have to say, no offense to them, I think you might be one of the most interesting human beings I've ever come across oh, no. in my entire life. <laughs> oh, my God. Now I have to like live up to some un- unimaginable uh, standard. Uh-oh. <laughs> what haven't you done? Have you colonized the moon? Like, What haven't you done? How many Super Bowls have you won at this point? Oh. All of my moon colonies have failed. A full everyone died. Everyone died in every moon colony. And uh, honestly, I, uh, I don't even know the rules to football. So <laughs> perfect. You're not missing out on much, honestly. Um, I, you know, I'm I'm reading your latest book, um, which I just started, and I really love good authors when they can get you to care about things that you wouldn't normally really care about and learning about this crazy storm that happened, you know, over a decade before I was born and what the hell that has to do with this soccer match between Pakistan and the Soviet union. And I'm fascinated, like what a cool and interesting story you were able to tell there. Yeah. The vortex has been a, um, you know, that's been something I've wanted to write about for mm, at least 10 years. And and the idea is, uh, well, it's it, it, the idea is to tell the story of climate change like a nonfiction action thriller, right? Where, you know, we are all facing this like pretty big problem that's coming right down the pipeline, right? Like where the, the planet is in a lot of trouble. And yet the, the, the problem is so giant that none of us can really conceive of it outside of like maybe the movie Mad Max, right? And uh, what I wanted to do was be able to show an instance where um, a weather event, a terrible weather event, um, ended up uh, spiraling out of control, uh, taking up into politics and um, uh, and you know the, the the human story that's involved and how it almost leads to um, nuclear war. And a real event happened like this in 1970 in uh, what is now Bangladesh, and. It, the, I mean, the, the story is absolutely insane. Yeah, we start with a soccer player and we tell it through the, the opening scene when I'm trying to describe the history of India and Pakistan, which is very convoluted. Uh, we tell it through the, the lens of a soccer player and the way the crowd cheers or doesn't cheer every time he gets the ball. And uh, and again, the, 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 the reason why we're doing this is because we want to hook people into this story so that they're learning about these events and then they can see how when we have a future where we have more and more increasingly powerful storms that it can um, they can see how it's happened in the past 
And then where they will see like, in the, this is all an allegory for what, you know, essentially will happen where history will repeat itself. And, you know, the real danger of climate change isn't the fact that you're going to lose some beachfront property and we're going to have some famines and whatnot, right? The problem is going to be when humans start reacting to all that stuff. You know, it's just like, you know, a Stephen King book, like the monsters are never actually the problem in the Stephen King book. It's always how the characters interact with each other around the monster. And that's what we're actually facing. Like, way more likely for us to all die in a war than it is from drought. Right. No, that's a really good point. I'm wondering if you get this a lot. Do you get a lot of people asking what I'm about to ask? Like, why didn't I learn about this? This is such a huge event. But why Why at age 38, is this the first day that I've ever heard about this event? I mean, there's so much in the world we don't know. And honestly, as a writer, that's fucking great. Right. Is that, is that there are so many nooks in history that are just unexplored because we only have a, a limited amount of time. Like, you know, to some degree, well, Bangladesh is on the other side of the world. Right. It happened to people who do not generally affect Americans on a day to day basis. And it's my job as a writer to show you how everything's interconnected. And, uh, you know, there's so much knowledge, there's so much history and there's so many perspectives on on you know, what happened in the world that we if we we you know we can't ever know it all right there's no way to know everything that's happened and you know as a writer what we're trying to do is highlight these things and make them relevant to you like i don't know anything about the assyrian empire i'm not even sure i care about the assyrian empire um but you know if someone told me this amazing story about the assyrians i think there was a, a, a book called gilgamesh about them um we could you know maybe that would suddenly engage me again yeah well it, it- Again, as an author, to be able to put, you know, the listener or the reader into a spot where they they care about those things and they're seeing, you know, what's going on mm-hmm. through those perspectives is really unique. And, and I think you do a fantastic job, which I absolutely love. I did want to focus Thanks. most of our discussion today on your other book, The Wedge. Um, but before mm-hmm. we do, we need to kind of tell a little bit of the backstory. And honestly, sure. <laughs> realizing that I, I came across your work over a decade ago when I read this article about this crazy dude mm-hmm. in Poland who's trying to swim under the ice and he could hold his breath for a long time. And I remember thinking like, who is this guy? I've never heard of this. I didn't think any of this can be done. Can you tell us a little bit of the story of how you got interested in some of the things you wrote about in the beginning? Yeah. So this is the story of Wim Hof, um, who is now the Dutch, who's called the Iceman. You've probably seen him on like the BBC. He's got TV shows. He was on Joe Rogan, Gwyneth Paltrow's his pal. Um, But, you know, back in 2010, um, he wasn't very well known in the world. He was sort of like a sideshow act, but he was starting to tell people that he could withstand cold temperatures for extremely amounts, long amounts of time, um, and that he could, again, he could hold his breath for this long period of time. But more than that, he said that his crazy environmental exposure techniques could let him take conscious control of his immune system. And I had just written a, a, a bunch of um, articles and books about um, sort of nonsense gurus who are, you know, offering superpowers to people and how that like sort of, you know, bilks them out of their money or sometimes even their lives. And I was incredibly skeptical of anyone offering superpowers. So I went out to debunk him, uh, you know, with a commission that ended up in Playboy. And, you know, the goal was to say, look, Wim Hof's this crazy guy. And I, I knew he was compelling. I knew that people liked this sort of thing. And, uh, you know, the law, the, the short of this is that I tried his method. It actually ended up working. It actually ended up curing an autoimmune disease I had. And then I ended up hiking up Mount Kilimanjaro in a bathing suit really, really fast. 
And um, so I sort of went from this like inveterate skeptic to someone who was, you know, I, I believes a lot of it. Not, not only believes it, but like it works. Like I know it works. It's not even a belief thing. And so a lot of my what I've done since then is try to explain how these supernatural looking um, feats are not supernatural at all. They make complete biological sense. And the issue is more about con the context of the modern human, that we are uh, understimulated uh, environmentally, but overstimulated mentally, uh, that we are, you know, creatures of comfort. And while well, comfort, hey, is awesome, uh, it's also making us weaker because our bodies aren't getting the stimulus they need to become more robust and survive in these environments that look extreme, but are really not that bad most of the time. And uh, it's been a blast um, to go on this journey. And, uh, you know, I was the first person to write about Wim. Now Wim is this enormous, enormous superstar. Um, but I was sort of like the first guy on the scene. And to some degree, I'm a little responsible for him getting so famous for better and worse, because there are some bad things about him getting super famous too. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's, it's it's a it's an interesting thing, and I and I put like a lot of videos these days on about YouTube as I sort of like watch how the method is developing and how it's talked about. And there's a lot of like mythology around it. There's a lot of people. It, it's it's so weird. Like when I started, I sort of and I was um, going to debunk Wim as a sort of a charlatan because he was going to get people in trouble. And then I ended up proving saying he was good. But nowadays, if I had gone to him again, like yesterday, I might be looking at the same cult that is showing up around him. And I might have come out with a, a sort of a, a somewhat different diagnosis. Um, because while the method is great, the cult around him is batshit crazy. So <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, I guess that's the way things develop over time. Yeah, sure. Well, you do such a great job of telling that story and highlighting both sides. Like for me personally, my, my hero still is Lance Armstrong and talk about somebody mm -hmm. who has, you know, such an amazing history, but also such a, a dark and bleak past. And you kind of have to say like, can you take the good with the bad? Like that's all of us. We all have those kind of shadow mm -hmm. sides. And I would love to hear the story on Kilimanjaro um, where you kind of had this almost like a, a, a light bulb moment, I guess you would say, where you mm -hmm. were you were you know doing all of this because of whim, yet you were seeing the benefit of doing his his methods and how that kind of switched over on that hike, which was very yeah, fast. So You're right. Very, very fast. <laughs> well, so we're going up Killy in um, and the goal. I mean, Killy's not hard. Like it's a hike. It's not like. Um, I'm, I don't have ice axes and ropes or any of that stuff. It's not technical, but the difficulty of Killy and the reason why so many people die on it is because the altitude gain is so fast that you don't have time to acclimate. You know, you don't build up those red blood cells and, and oxygenate your blood. So people sort of go into this like chronic spiral that leads to organ failure. It's acute mountain sickness is what it's called. And what we were doing was going up very fast, skipping the acclimation stops, which should put you to the top in about five days. Um, we were going to do it in 30 hours. That was our stated goal. And when we told like the army uh, about it, uh, the U.S. Army Environmental Unit, they predicted that we would have 60 percent of our group um, turn back because of uh, acute altitude sickness. And then when we asked the Dutch, Dutch Mountaineering Association, they just said we were all going to die. They didn't even <laughs> mince words. And. Um, what, what we what we were doing is because I've been conditioning myself with the cold baths and the breath work that's part of the Wim Hof method that we can go into. But, you know, you should just Google it because 
why not? It's all there on the internet. Um, I've been doing that for six years at that point. And uh, we figured that that would give me some resilience, but also the plan was, was to sort of hack um, altitude, which is, you know, as you go higher, there's less available oxygen in the atmosphere that, you know, in general you have, sorry, throughout the whole globe, it's 20% oxygen in the atmosphere. But as you go higher, that air is thinner. So when you take a breath of air, the percentage of oxygen in that volume of your lungs is less. So that's bad, right? And your, and your O2 saturation goes down as you go up. Uh, so, and, and the safe thing to do is to build up more red blood cells and that makes it, you know, it adapts you pretty well. Uh, at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, you're at 10% oxygen. So you're getting half as much wow. oxygen into your tissues with every breath. And this is really bad. Um, what we did, what the Wim Hof method is based on is like rapid breathing. It's like hyperventilating and holding your breath and hyperventilating and holding your breath. We just adapted that method so that I basically hyperventilated from the bottom of the mountain all the way to the top of the mountain. So I just breathe really fast, like <laughs> the entire way for, for a hell of a long time. And we did make it to the, the top. Um, we did it in 28 hours, which is pretty cool. Um, but the thing was, is that Wim, while he is an amazing dude, and I love Wim, I talk to him all the time. He's a great guy, but he's fucking batshit insane. And he is, I call him a prophet and a madman, and you cannot, you know, have one without the other with him. And he is, you know, part of him is, you know, when we started the the hike, he said, everyone, we will go together as one group. There is no ego we go, which is pretty cheesy, right? Nice. So he has this idea, uh, but he says that, right? There's no ego, we go. And then he just sprints up the mountain. He like ditches everyone within like two minutes. Like it was like, okay, right. That's that's the game we're playing. So, you know, he really wants to go up and some of our group is weaker than other members of the group, right? I mean, any any group of 30 people, some people aren't going to be as in, in good shape as the other. And Wim is just like, vamoosed. And, uh, you know, he really wants something like a record because there's this record that we were going to beat um, 30 hours to the top, blah, 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 stuff like that. And he was really fixated on this. And eventually when we're at Kibo, which is close to the top, I don't know, it's like right before your final ascent where it gets really steep. Um, he he looks at this watch. He's like, oh, man, we might not make 30 hours. And everyone else is like, fuck, we don't care. Um, we just want to make it to the top and back. And he's like, no, no, we got to go. And like, he skips lunch. He has and tells everyone, no lunch. You just go right up. And, you know, normally skipping lunch is not a big deal. But when you're on a mountain and you need the energy to move your feet, uh, it's a big fucking deal. And the, and the um, you know, our mountain guides were like, no, you can't do it. And they're trying to get in his way. And he just like bolts past them. And he, and I, like this stupid fucking author, am like, well, I got a book to write. And he is like, I think there's like one person with him or something like that. And I'm like, God damn it. And so I like just race up after him stupidly. And, you know, we're going up together and there's just three of us on this hike up and, uh, and I'm like pissed at him the whole time. I'm like, fuck you, Wim. Like, why are we doing this? Um, I'm only here cause I'm writing this book and blah, blah, blah. And, and, uh, and at this point, I'm, I'm standing behind him and I see him slip a little bit. Like there's just some sort of a rocky thing. It's not like a major fall, but he slips and sort of like ends up sort of down. And I'm like, huh, Superman's not a Superman after all. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing following non-Superman whim? And, and, and I realized that, you know, I'd been training for six years 
And ultimately, these are all my decisions. Like every decision to get there was mine, including my stupid decision to go follow him up this point, even though the rest of the group, like 20 people or 30 people are behind us, like all mutinied. Um, and I realized like, look, we can do this. And I, you know, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm like, half the time I'm wearing a shirt, half the time I'm not wearing a shirt. It's like negative 30 degrees out. Um, and, you know, that's all part of the method. And that's not hugely important to this story. But, you know, I'm like, oh, look, I can do it. And I sort of like relax into this. I'm like, look, yeah, okay, no ego, we go. But really, this is my journey as much as it is yours. And, and, I, and at this point, I also sort of realized that it's not about women at all. It's also about connecting to the environment around you in, in general. Like you can fight the mountain or you can connect to that mountain. And, and it's, and with that realization, you know, it's sort of the difference between, you know, grit and flow, right? Grit is like, you know, grinding your teeth and just like pushing yourself and hurting yourself as you do it or flow, which is like, look, we can all work together in this environment. And that actually gave me a fair amount of resilience, that sort of mental, um, uh, trick. Uh, and yeah. And so then we made it up to the mountain and it was really fun. We took a little selfie on the top and, you know, just to prove people, we made it up to, um, Gilman's point, which actually wasn't the true summit. It was like a hundred feet below the true summit. But, um, if we'd eaten lunch, I think we would have made it there, but you know, so it goes. <laughs> wow. What an incredible story. And it is a really cool realization. We love talking about flow. We've spoken to Stephen Kotler, um, about his work in the flow Institute. And yet there, there is a way of kind of accepting the things that are happening, you know, not, and, and not trying to battle everything all the time. And I feel like that's really what you learned with your book. What doesn't kill you is, is some of those practices that you incorporated. I, I would also recommend the listener. Like if you want to look up Wim Hof's methods, go Go, definitely go Google that and and follow it because you you might get really confused. I think a lot of people misinterpret it. But from your personal experience, can you talk about some of those things that were uncomfortable that you put yourself through as like a daily practice and why that helped build your resilience? So the well, with the Wim Hof method, it's just two things, right? Wim Hof is um, breath work, which where you uh, over breathe, you you hyperventilate, and then you exhale, and then you hold your breath. And hold, as long as you can. And that's the breathing method. Uh, and what you're doing there is you're creating this artificial environment in your body. Like if you think of your, your body as an environment, all like an ecosystem unto itself, you're creating a, an environment that is challenging because the over-breathing feels like panic and the, the holding your breath feels like death to some degree, right? And you're trying to like when you're when you when you're when you're over breathing, you're trying not to have the mental experience of panicking. And when you're holding your breath, you're again trying to suppress that physiological um, get, uh, reflex to breathe, which is related. And uh, and it's as much about physically training your body to deal with these conditions as it is mentally realizing that you have this um, control that is based on your own decision-making. This is what I call the wedge, right? It's the idea that you're putting this wedge between the stimulus in this one, the artificially created stimulus of holding your breath and the response, the desire to breathe. And you realize that you have a choice at every moment until you don't. I mean, there's a point you'll pass out, but until that point, but there's a sort of like ramping up of like anxiety that comes before your body like shuts down. And you're trying to like expand that range uh, as you do it. And that is what I call the wedge. You're putting a wedge between the stimulus and the response. Um, the other thing that Wim does um, and is very well known for is uh, ice water. So you jump into ice water and 
And the autonomic reactions, the automatic responses of your body are to um, shiver, shake, and get the fuck out of the ice water, right? Because the stimulus of the ice water is death uh, for all intents and purposes. It's your body being like, oh God, we are in this like horrible environment and I do not want to be here and I'm going to freeze to death. That's what the, the water is always saying to everyone who goes in, including to Wim and to me. We've been doing it forever. Um, what the goal is, is to get into that stimulus, that objectively difficult stimulus and tell yourself it's all right. And my auto, my automatic response of hyperventilating in that situation, I can control. So you control your breath and you relax in that difficult stimulus. You insert a wedge between your shiver anxiety response and, um, and your mind. And, and all of a sudden you realize that that external stimulus isn't so bad. And it's actually, it's, it's actually totally fine. And you're never going to die in a two minute ice bath. It just doesn't happen. Uh, and, and this then plays out in every other aspect of your life. And this is when, you know, when we get beyond Wim Hof method, when we really talk about what I'm doing in the wedge, you're, you're seeing that every, in every sensation you feel is also an emotional reaction. Like it doesn't matter what the sensation is, whether it's sex, whether it's heat, whether it's cold, whether it's ennui, like all of those things are sensations and, and the sensation and the emotion are mixed together. And you always have a choice in how you respond mentally. And those mental responses also translate into physiological responses that you could track with like hormonal profiles and things like that. And that is the fascinating thing about um, mind over matter is that it's totally easy to do. Anyone can do it. And we all do it all the time. Um, it just doesn't make you levitate. It just like says like, I can actually just control my body. It's actually super simple. Um, put yourself in an environment that tells you to do something and then do the opposite. Interesting. And then over time, can we rewire those, um, maybe averse feelings that we have towards things like cold might really, really suck initially, but over time, can we rewire that to be, um, more tolerable? Um, it's interesting. You you re you change your relationship with it. You don't change the cold. The cold is always the cold. Like that doesn't change. But you do change the way you relate to it. Your responsibility towards that um, environment. And uh, I, I am certainly way more resilient than I used to be to the cold. Um, I don't know if that matters necessarily. Like, who gives a fuck? I'm an ice bather. Like, you know, it, it, it's not really all that important. What it's important is that it, it lets you create that space between stimulus and response, and you can use that anywhere. And it, I, I, and I guess one of the interesting things, if you think about your body as an environment, right? And this is a big, big theme in the wedge. Your body is an environment just the way your body exists in an environment. And if there's parts of your body that you have conscious control over, I'm speaking right now, I'm moving my arms around, I'm blinking, right? I've, that's your somatic nervous system that you have control over. But there's all this autonomic stuff too. Heartbeat, digestion, blood flow. Um, you've got this immune system doing all sorts of crazy things. And if you change the way you consciously respond to the external environment uh, and, you know, the, in that somatic system, the messages that your internal environment is getting, so for instance, your heartbeat, your digestion or whatever, is also changing, right? So let's say you're, um, I climbed up Mount Kilimanjaro. I got to the top. Yay. It was really cool. And in, in doing so, um, uh, I'm carrying with me all of my gut bacteria, all of my immune system. And, you know, 
we'll just talk about a macrophage. That's an immune cell. It's a pretty important immune cell, but it's an immune cell. And it goes around and it eats bad things. It's It came up to Mount Kilimanjaro with me, right? It did that whole trip with me, but it didn't know what my Kilimanjaro is. But it experienced it through the, you know, first my sensations then created like hormones, secretions and change. And I changed its environment around that mitochondria, around that mitochondria and the mitochondria, whatever its job was doing was influenced by that environment that I created internally. And that becomes a sort of really important communication chain where you realize you can actually communicate it, not necessarily words, but maybe ideas to your immune system. Because your immune system has an idea that something's a threat or not a threat. Like you bathe a, a, a mitochondria in, um, in adrenaline and it goes crazy. It waves its little flagella all around and goes and attacks things. If you don't put it in, in with adrenaline, it's like, oh, this is fine. You know, and and you're modulating your adrenaline levels as you say panic or as you sort of ramp up your energy levels or as you get scared. All of that translates to what's going on in, in your body. And this concept is hugely important when you start talking about autoimmune illnesses or gut illnesses or all of these things where your body goes haywire, not because of a pathogen or something like a virus or a bacteria coming in, but just because your body doesn't like you like arthritis or lupus or MS, you know, all of these things where, where um, the body breaks down because it's attacking itself. Well, if you can change that internal environment, um, you know, which is what drugs do too. A right? drug is changing your internal environment. Um, if you can actually do that with some conscious stuff, that, that gives you a great deal of power over um, what's going on inside of you and how you experience life. It reduces your suffering. Um, and in my case, it, it has helped with um, some autoimmune illnesses too, and lots of other people's cases too. Yeah, no, you hear about that all the time. That's really amazing. Now might be a really good time to have you highlight a little bit about our immune, uh, I'm sorry, our, our nervous system and the sympathetic and parasympathetic states and how they differ. And are there any other you know states besides those two states? I've heard you explain this before, and I think you do a really good job with this. So yeah, so so... Your nervous system is super dumb. Okay, um, there are only two things that you're two. I mean, I mean, actually, there are is a third, but I just ignore it. Um, uh, but there's only two important states that your nervous system has, which is um, sympathetic, that's fight or flight, and then there's parasympathetic, which is rest and digest. And and everything that your body does has to be activated through these systems. Um, fight or flight or rest and digest. You don't have a third system called ennui, or you don't have a third system called let's do our taxes um, or let's go shoot a deer. Um, you have, you can shoot the deer with your sympathetic or you can shoot the deer with your parasympathetic. There's no other option. And, um, and this is, I mean, we can go sort of deeper into the neurology, but this is because your, um, your vagus nerve, which is one of the primary nerves in your body has two branches, right? One branch is the parasympathetic branch and the other is the sympathetic branch and they affect different nervous systems. They affect, affect, they both wire into your organs, but they give your organs sort of different messages as they go. And so what we are, um, when you are in, in fight or flight, you know, you, you always have this choice, right? In any situation, you can, um, you can, you can try to be relaxed about that situation or you can try to fight in that situation. And, and that is what we do. Like right now, when I'm talking to you, I'm probably, you know, I can sort of hear my voice. I'm sort of excited. That's probably partially sympathetic, 
right? That's partly partially sympathetic. Um, my my um, my parasympathetic probably is also going at the same time. Um, and it's not an on-off switch. This is super important to realize. Is that you know you would think that rest and digest would be off. And, and fight or flight would be on. But the truth is, is that they're both on. <laughs> you know, there's never a time when one's off, but one becomes dominant or one becomes non-dominant. So, you know, the, the definition of what is sympathetic, fight or flight, that's anxiety, that's rage, that's that's the go get them stuff. And the flow, relax, everything is okay is the parasympathetic. Now, in general, in our lives, um, you know, where we evolved from, uh, those two nervous systems were supposed to respond to specific environments, right? The environment, you know, where we where we came from, you know, where you know Homo sapiens grow up on the, the the plains of Africa, and you know, when you see a lion, that lion says fight or flight. You're going to go stab the lion, or you're going to run from the lion. There's no like, yeah, it's going to chill. And we're going to hang out with the lion. That does not work in in lion land. Uh, so. So there was a normal logic, like the environment and your um, your body, your, your nervous systems were in tune. The problem right now is that we are super smart. We're super technologically advanced. We can do a ton of things. And because we can plan into the future so well, um, our fight or flight responses are getting very confused. Because when you do your taxes, for instance, they stress you out. You're like, fuck taxes, I hate taxes. And why is the, F why is, uh, you know, why does the IRS want all my money? That fucking IRS, I can't believe it. I'm gonna take a, do my schedule C and like all that <laughs> shit. And, but, but that doesn't make any sense from a biological standpoint. You can't stab the IRS to death, which is what you wanna do with the lion, right? So you're using your, fight or flight responses, which are survival oriented. And so that made rational sense, but you're using in a context where your body is sitting at a desk, trying to sort something out where you should be environmentally parasympathetic. And, and we are trying to put those, those things in order. And the reason why um, we do hard things, the reason why we expose ourselves to stimulus is because in general, we have this, this, this life where we're being sympathetic in a parasympathetic environment. So we need to balance that out by putting ourselves in sympathetic environments um, more frequently and, and try not to numb ourselves so we can feel those sensations and put things back into balance. That is so well explained. I absolutely love that. Um, it sounds like learning the lesson of like, I, I have to have this rule for myself, never to scroll Twitter. <laughs> Cause I feel like I want to strangle oh, yeah. some avatar halfway across the world that put, you know, some digital sign out in the world that doesn't affect me at all. Yet you can feel those responses kick in. Yeah. I mean, totally. I mean, I am just as guilty as this because I am also a denizen of my computer. Uh, but yeah, the, the, in general, our news cycle is so fast that it puts everything on an equal footing, right? You know, today when we're recording this, there was a school shooting, right? And that was horrible. And uh, two days, ago, like a week or two ago, the Supreme Court got locked in on one side. Another thing that causes a lot of anxiety. We had abortion. We had like, blah. all of this stuff is sort of going on all the time. And it all is screaming at us, like, pay attention right now, stab this lion. And the, the, the unfortunate fact is, while those things are actually existential problems that we do have to deal with as a society, our nervous systems are not designed to deal with that. 
right? We are we have no control over the that stuff which is external to us. And well, while you should vote and you should be a good public citizen and do do your part, um, stressing out about it does nothing. Like it, all it does is hurt you. It doesn't solve the problem. And our nervous systems are designed to solve problems. That lion's coming. You're going to run or you're going to stab it. Problem over. Next challenge. Because our nervous systems are dumb. And that's just, the, that's just the way it goes. I wish I could say it was something else. Oh, you just use this other nervous system and you can, you can change a politician's mind. No, we don't have that nervous system. I wish we did. Um, it does get into the broader context, though, of where I talk about, you know, you're in an environment as the way you are an environment. And, you know, the way I look at things is that is that, you know, we're just pieces of this giant super organism of society in America and a society on the globe. And, you know, we're about as effective at changing that larger super organism as a mitochondria is to changing my own um, uh, mental state. And I think the mitochondria can fuck me up by eating my myelin sheath to give me MS. It can give me rheumatoid arthritis. It can do all that stuff to mess me up. But it's not really going to change whether or not walk up, I walk up Mount Kilimanjaro, right? Right. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Let's talk about some of the methods that you used in the wedge. And I think you do a really good job explaining that it's not necessarily for the reader to do all of the same methods that you did and take from them exactly yeah. what you took from mm-hmm. ice baths or saunas or whatever. But maybe we could go into some of the things that you were trying out to do, like you said, like create a sympathetic type of yeah. environment and and learn how to relax. What were some of the things you mm-hmm. came across in the book? So in general, the way the way the wedge works in the 10 things that I tried, and really there are thousands of these wedge practices that you can do. Like you could practice the wedge while fighting with your spouse or your child, right? You could be like, that kid makes me crazy and I'm gonna, I don't know, blow up and say something dumb. Or I can be like, no, I'll just wait here a little bit and try to relax in that. That's like the Jedi wedge, right? That's probably the hardest wedge in some ways, right? Um, But these are physical practices, which give you, that, which make it very apparent. Now, the easiest to explain is of course, ice water. You're in the ice water. The ice water wants to make you fight and you decide that, no, I'm gonna relax in the ice water. So you're trying to like do these opposites. You're trying to toggle that vagus nerve that you have and switch to the other branch in that situation. So whereas cold makes you want to go full sympathetic, heat on the opposite side makes you want to go parasympathetic. It makes you want to slow down. So, um, and and there's two ways you can deal with heat, right? You can do like a high intensity workout in the heat, right? That's going to build you more resilience to the heat. And it, it sort of switches that, 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 you know, you're trying to relax, but now you're going to fight, or you can try to stay in the heat for a really long time and stay relaxed that whole time. Cause it's at some point that heat's going to make you, uh, it's going to switch you over autonomically to fight or flight. And it's going to try to remove you from that situation. So I did this like six hour sauna in Latvia, like 180 degrees, uh, where, uh, I'm playing with hot and cold temperatures as I do it. So I'm in the sauna for like an hour and then it's like a quick ice thing that I go back in and I eat or drink a tea and like there's all that's it's total voodoo and weirdoness Holy but shit. it sent it, it essentially made me gave me synesthesia where after I started contrasting a bunch of sensory um, events I started like hearing sounds and seeing um what do you what do you see seeing smells and like it was totally bizarre because I'm 
fucking with my nervous system and it doesn't quite know how to deal with it. And at the end, it sort of like feels all clean. Like I get to sort of have a fresh perspective on things. It's not mental, but it's physical. Like, and that's super important because I'm not always trying to talk to your brain and the words that come out of your mouth, which is an interesting challenge with writing a book because I have to write it in words. But what we're trying to do is use the language of your body and to talk to that nervous system, like, you know, get that mitochondria to respond to this environment. Another one thing that I did was um, throwing kettlebells. And this is, it, it looks so weird because it looks like super douchey, like Instagram bullshit, right? Where you're, where you and a partner are facing off each other and you're throwing like a 30, 40 pound weight between each other. And there's an exercise component to this. So you can get jacked, not that I am, but you could get jacked, right? But more importantly, it's an exercise where you're where you're where usually when two dudes face off against each other and they're throwing something, it's sort of a confrontational danger area. Right. If I'm going to throw a 40 pound weight at you, um, everyone thinks, well, I'm going to hurt my foot or you're going to hurt your foot or maybe you're going to try to kill me. You know? And what we're actually trying to do is the reason why you're throwing this is because your first impulse is always to be scared and your second impulse is to catch that bell and then return it. And all of a sudden, within like seconds, you go from being, this is a lame, douchey exercise to, oh my God, we're dancing. Me and this other guy are dancing or me and my wife are dancing. And now we're learning how to trust each other physically. Not mentally, not with words, but physically. And it actually becomes a really, really cool practice for couples because every relationship, I don't care what, what your relationship is, there are things that you do not trust about your partner, right? There's, th there, there's stuff out there that you don't trust. Hopefully it's not very important, but it could be. And, and there's like areas that you don't want to, to go to. One of those areas for everyone happens to be throwing weights at other people's feet. And... <laughs> And once you start learning that you can um, do this and engage in this sort of dance-like practice, you start um, building up trust with another human in a way where you don't need to use words. Because, you know, it's interesting. A lot of us think that therapy needs words and talk therapy is sometimes effective, but oftentimes it doesn't address the nervous system and it, it misses a physical component of existing problems and, and and how that there's this feedback loop from brain to body and brain to body and body to brain. And if you only treat one, it's much, much more difficult to see progress. Yeah. That's so interesting. Hearing you talk about throwing kettlebells, like I love working out with kettlebells. We do it with our clients all the time. I've never physically thrown one at another person. <laughs> and just to clarify, like both people are consensually doing this, right? This isn't like a sneak attack where you just throw no, it. No, no, no. There's no, there's definitely no sneak attack. You, there's a whole protocol that goes with it. Um, you know, you, you, it's slow. It's not, um, it's, it, you're not trying to beat the other person, right? The, the only way you lose at kettlebells is if you drop the kettlebell. So you're trying to cooperate. It's more like lobbing balls at tennis and not trying to win versus trying to like spike the ball. Yeah. Do you spike in tennis? I don't know. Whatever you do to grand slam it or whatever. <laughs> um, you're, you're, tr you're, you're trying to learn cooperation and you, and, and you're acknowledging, this is super important. You're acknowledging the mutual danger that you're putting each other into. Um, and it's funny for most of us in, in caring relationships, um, we're much more scared of hurting the other person than we are of hurting ourselves. And it's true for both parties. And I think that's another hidden component here is you realize that you actually care about other people in some ways more than yourself. Uh, and, and it's a cool lesson 
to to have. And so if you want to learn kettlebell partner passing, um, you know, I didn't invent it. There's this guy named Michael Castro Giovanni who did, um, but I write about it in the book and you can go check out his thing. It's called KPP. I'm sure there's a website and stuff like that. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I just think the way we evolved, you know, having a share fate with our tribe, you know, if a storm comes, we're all in trouble. If we don't hunt together, we're all in trouble. And having, having that level of cooperation and trust is so critical for us being a species and being humans. And really, when you look at us, we're not really that special besides some of those things that we can really cooperate and communicate more effectively than a lot of other animals. And that's what makes us human. And that's what helps us, you know, advance technology, which also makes us human. Yeah. I don't think we're special at all. Like, I think that we are just an iteration of the stuff that's on this planet and um, whether or not we continue for another hundred or thousand years, like life will go on. We're all part. I mean, honestly, we're all in it together. Um, You know, we're all on this spinning little blue rock that's circling the sun and we're all trying to create meaning. And and the meaning of life is probably to be kind to one another, right? At the end of the day is is try to to do as little harm to the world as possible and, um, you know, be good to each other. And I think that that's sort of like a truism that exists in every religion. and um, and, and I, and I think it's important for humans also to realize that we're not special. Like we have this big Judeo Christian, thou shalt use every part of the earth, however thine wishest. That's totally a quote from the Bible. Right. Um, uh, and, and, and I, there are other traditions that are out there that are a little less aggressive, not to say that there's humans that are better because we're all actually assholes. Um, but, but they're, there's this idea that you want to have balance in nature. And I feel like the society we have right now is quite unbalanced. And we see that now because we're unbalanced as, as individuals and then as a society that we're actually now unbalancing um, ecological systems. Uh, that is, you know, some listeners on this podcast, I always get pushback when I, when I um, say that climate change exists and it does. I'm sorry. Um, it's <laughs> happening and, and, and we're causing it. And, and it would be interesting if we, if, if we are able to solve this issue, it's going to show that we actually can evolve to cooperate on a, uh, on a societal level, right? Like we have to realize that all of us have common interests. Like we're all those macrophages in our body, but the body is the earth, right? You are the macrophage. The earth is the body. And it's, if, if I die, my macrophages are fucking going with me. Like they're, they're not going to jump ship and jump over to you to like continue on their journey. No, they are done. There is no Elon Musk, um, uh, Mars living macrophage out there, right? Who's going to set up a colony in someone else's body. No, it's done. And I think that we need to acknowledge this, that, that um, you know, Republican, Democrat, Sharia law, ISIS fighter, you know, Christian evangelical, whatever. We're all in it together. And if we don't cooperate, we're fucked. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think we do have so much more in common than not. Yet we tend to focus on those things that we have differences with people. Um, in the wedge, speaking of, in the wedge, you talk about using um, plant medicines as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and how that helped evolve your understanding? Yeah, so, so, I've talked a little bit about internal and external environments, right? And so a lot of the wedge protocols are changing your external environment to then think about changing your internal environment. But there's two um, chemicals that I used, which changes your internal environment. And then when you change your internal environment, what you're trying to do is is change your mental environment and your reactions to your own body. And that's that's, you know, that's 
fascinating that you can do that, right? But you need this perspective of, of, of sort of nested Russian dolls of various environments to get there. And I'd been practicing tons of these external things for years. Uh, and then I was like, okay, let's do some psychedelics of various sorts, because that's going to create um, mental changes, physical changes that then I can try to use to find cool things that happen. And I do know that psychedelics right now are getting a huge resurgence, right? We're really seeing that psychedelics have these really cool effects that can um, help anxiety, depression, end of life um, stuff. And I do think that there's a problem in the way we talk about a lot of these medicines um, is that it's the chemical doing the work right? Is that you take a chemical, I take the psilocybin chemical, which is part of the mushroom, and then my depression is gone later. And what it's missing, what that whole like chain of, of, of clinical literature out there is missing is that it's not the mushroom that's doing it. It's you interacting with that mushroom when you're going through and wrestling with these actually usually very difficult ideas. You know, for whatever reason, psilocybin makes you think of death, right? And you, 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 you face death. And most Americans do not want to ever think of death. We all think that we're going to be immortal. We all think that tomorrow someone's going to invent regenerative medicine and we're going to upload our brains to some fucking computer someday, right? There's this whole like immortalist thing that's going on. Um, what mushrooms tell you is like, you're going to fucking die and it's okay, which is mind blowing for most of us, right? <laughs> we're like, whoa, I, it's, uh, if I die, it's like, I can end, I can end me. The, uh, I was here all along, right? And, and so you have these, re, these things, which are then once you come, um, once you get okay with death, everything becomes easier because the stakes are now obvious. The stake is like the worst thing that could ever happen to you will happen to you. Now let's put our priorities straight. And that's a really cool message that comes out of it. And it's not because you had neurons change in your brain, although I'm sure neurons changed. You change those neurons by by responding to that. And people who have bad trips are the people who most resist that change, right? The people who have bad trips are the ones who are like, "Fuck, I'm gonna die! I'm gonna die!" And they go to this like horror cycle of like, "Oh my god, I'm gonna die!" And, and it goes really deep, and that wires all this horrible shit in their in their minds. Um, so um, psychedelics are dangerous because you can go down that path. But they're also a, a necessary challenge in some way, well, not necessary, an optional challenge that we can we can we can use. Um, one, another chemical that I did, actually, I didn't even write about mushrooms in the book, but I just told you what you would learn if you took mushrooms. Um, the other thing that I wrote about was um, uh, uh, MDMA, which is the street drug ecstasy, and I took it with my wife uh, in front of two clinical psychologists, sort of relationship counselors who'd never seen this. Never, I mean, they probably seen ecstasy before, but they'd never actually seen it in a clinical setting. And what is so cool about this, and the, the interesting wedge that shows up is that MDMA makes it almost impossible to have a negative interaction, right? You know, you think about how it exists and like the party scene and like people are dancing at a rave or whatever, and they're just like all over each other because sensations just feel so awesome, right? And everything is just so good. There's nothing bad. Everything's awesome. And but when you use it in a clinical setting, you know, you got to refrain from putting your hands all over each other. Um, but what, what happens is that you can actually talk about very difficult subjects, right? The hardest subjects ever. And the other person is not, is like biologically stuck in responding positively to you, the, the, the shit you throw down. So um, a, an example would be like, you know, you, you know, me and my wife are in a, in a, in a, uh, this session and I say something, I didn't actually say this, but like, it would be something like this, like, I hate your mother. 
And normally the reaction is like, well, fuck you, I hate your mother, right? <laughs> I mean, that's how we respond. We instantly react. But instead, ecstasy comes in there as like, no, no, I understand. Now, tell me more about that. And it, it just sort of forces these very actually productive conversations because you have to realize that you have, you hopefully love each other anyway, right? You hopefully are in this for reasons that you acknowledge are good anyway. So then these become these very chemically assisted um, uh, positive interactions. And then that, that plays out in, in your therapeutic setting. So that it, just, it becomes like a shortcut in a way uh, that will let you have those difficult conversations that might take six or seven months to get to in a normal therapeutic cycle. Yeah, that's right. The frustrating thing about all of that is they were starting to learn this 50 years ago. And when all of this, you know, war on drug bullshit started happening and they scheduled this as a you know, class two or three or whatever the hell it was where you couldn't access it. Yep. And we just lost all of those years in wonderful research. And just to see that that is resurging, especially in couples therapy and PTSD and all hmm. these different conditions, it is so encouraging that that might be a tool that we can use in the future. One thing that I always misunderstood about plant medicines is I thought, well, like, yeah, as long as you're on the, you know, psilocybin or whatever, you're going to encounter these things. But I didn't, I didn't really fully realize how much you could take those lessons and continue to apply them in your life when you shifted back into like a normal state of mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it was, you absolutely can, and you should, and, but I think there's one thing that is super important to put forward. Plant medicines are super popular right now. Everyone's got a shaman. Everyone's going around and, you know, doing, you know, the, Oh, I got, I know I have a vape pen with DMT in it. Right. And people, everyone knows someone like this these days. Uh, and if you don't just look around, they're there. And the problem is, is that we're getting to a point where we're too addicted to the to insight. And is that we're not actually taking it with the, the gravity that's important. The idea is that, you know, I know somebody, a gotcha good friend of mine, who said she did three ayahuasca ceremonies last week, which is insanity because you, you need to like do this thing, have that insight, and then process it for months. Like I love psychedelics. I the last time I took one was a year and a half ago. Um, and and it's, it's actually that processing afterwards, which is as important um, and actually probably even more important than the high of seeing God or seeing death or whatever. Um, you, you really need to integrate, integrate, integrate. And I think that we, because we're so sympathetic in general, like we're so go get them, go get them, find the answer, find the answer, find the answer all the time, that we have this idea that this thing's going to solve the problem or it's going to be fun or whatever it is we think. And we're not treating it with respect. And I worry that um, that the excitement around these, these um, medicines is a little over-enthusiastic. And I'm, I, I totally see that we're going to have major problems because of the way we're doing plant medicine right now. I'm not saying that it should be only done by doctors. I'm not saying that it should be caged off by you know Purdue Pharma and that they make a mint off of it. But I am saying that it's not a party and you should not treat it like a party. Yeah, absolutely. I'd never heard of anybody taking it that frequently. And talk about, you know, your work with the enlightenment trap that perfectly aligns with that, where mm -hmm. you can have people go way too far into something that's, yep. you know, really good and, and, mm -hmm. you know, cause this kind of state of mind where you're not really living on the planet with the rest of us right. and you still have to do your mm -hmm. laundry and fill up your car with gas. Like, you know, right. Yeah. We're, 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 we're here. We're living life where like, you can't, there's no getting off this rock. Like we're in it. And uh, yeah, the, what, the, the concept you're, you're referring to is what's called spiritual bypassing, which is the idea you find a spiritual idea 
Um, what, however you get that insight through religion is what I talk about in the enlightenment trap, but it can also be through ayahuasca. And that spiritual idea becomes more important than the material reality of your actual relationships around you. And, um, you know, spiritual insights are useful and they, sometimes they do come from out of the box. So I'm not, I don't want to discount them, but you have to see how that actually fits in with your life and how it all integrates. And this is the problem for always chasing those things. I mean, how many people, you know, in the yoga community, right. Or that weird, the fringe spiritual community where you go to them, you're like, Oh man, me and my wife just had this huge fight. And I don't know if I can, if, if, if we're going to make it. And, and then they just look at you and they say, you know, it makes so much sense because Mercury is in retrograde and you are a Taurus <laughs> and you're like, fuck off. Doesn't right? Help. Like, <laughs> right. It's like, it's like this external thing that they're like, oh, well, we can control these other things. Cause I read a lot of like, you know, esoteric literature and, and, and where they, when you place that esoteric stuff at a more important position than your real life, that's where things go really, really haywire. So, you know, I'm an interesting person uh, when I, when it comes to this stuff, because you ask me these questions, you're like, ah, oh, tell me about ayahuasca. I'm like, ah, oh, dude, don't do it. It's fucking scary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrified of it. Honestly, <laughs> I'm glad it's not available on the street corner where I live. Cause uh, yeah, it, it sounds terrifying. It sounds something that's absolutely needs your full respect and needs some time to process later. Like you mentioned, I think that was a really good point. Um, I, I wonder if you could, you know, after doing this for over a decade and, and exploring all these different ways to put yourself in uncomfortable positions, you know, things like negative visualization and, you know, imagining all the worst things that could happen, whatever. Uh, after going through all these things, how has that enhanced your life personally and practically? Yeah, see, that's an interesting question because it's so hard to know how, how life would be if you hadn't done it right? If you hadn't done it this way, how would my life be different, right? And it, this is a problem with all medicine. Like, this is actually a problem in all clinical literature right now, is that, you know, when we look at, like, cancer survival rates, we don't know what the natural course of cancer is anymore, right? We don't know because we treat everything. So right. how would my life be different if um, I hadn't done this stuff? I can't say. What I can say is that when I feel anxious, I have things I can do. Right. I can recognize it in myself and I can do things about it. Uh, it has given me I, I feel like I have a measure of control um, over life. I think, you know, it's both, you know, it, it's it's both an internal thing, but I'm also like I'm fairly successful. Luckily, I'm not like super successful, which is an awesome place to be. Right. Like not everyone knows my name and that's fucking great. Um, and and uh, and yet I still have enough out there that I'm not like destitute on the side of the road, you know, trying to like make ends meet. Like I'm in a very, very nice middle ground and being okay with that is so liberating. Right. And I think it all, you know, it's everything is, it has to be in balance. Like everything has to like, one thing has to speak to another. And, you know, my relationship with my wife is great. There's ups and downs. Right. I, I, you know, the world is chaotic, but generally I'm okay with it. You know, it, it's, it's, it's about being in balance. And I, and I have, you know, I have an ice bath, I have a sauna, I have some kettlebells, I have things I can do uh, where I have my priorities in the right place. Uh, and I think that's, you know, I'm reading um, Mark Mason's book, um, Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck right now, which so is good. randomly. So good. I feel, I feel like, I feel like I had to read it at some point and I loved the title. Um, so I was, I was reading it and, you know, he, he, he makes some really good points um, that's basically just crib from Buddhism, but we'll give it to him, um, which is that, uh, you know, it's about taking responsibility for your actions and 
and not having ideals and values that are so overblown that having those overblown ideas makes you feel bad about life. And I have been, you know, before reading his book, right? I, I've been luckily um, pretty good at that. And I think part of it is the techniques I'm doing. Part of it's probably genetics and personality. Like it's a lot of things that come together. But I've seen a lot of people improve for doing this. Like I get emails all the time from people who read What Doesn't Kill Us or The Wedge is that your book changed my life. So I think I'm onto something. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I just, I love, you know, mentioning responsibility, how he, how he talks about the difference between fault and responsibility. And yeah, it wasn't my fault that there was a coronavirus pandemic, but it is my responsibility mm -hmm. to address it in a way that is going to, you know, be responsible. Mm -hmm. And so those are two different mm -hmm. things and realizing mm -hmm. that, that, that that is what we're up against helps you decide where you should focus your attention on the stuff you can control versus the stuff you can't control. And I just, I, I right. see society going in this way of like the comfort crisis, like Michael Easter talks about, mm -hmm. like, it's just too comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's, it's easy to be 72 degrees all the time. It's mm -hmm. easy to be in the right light that I like without going outside and being in sunshine. And, mm -hmm. and so I just, I really love this work. And I think on an individual level, the stuff that you're putting out is really, really practical and can really help people understand that, yeah, I might do something that makes me a little bit uncomfortable now, but that's going to help me in the future be more strong and resilient for whatever the hell is to come next. Who knows? Maybe another pandemic. <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I think it's really helpful. And and you also do these things not because the result is the important thing. And I think that's, that's um, you know, it's it's all part of the journey. And and I don't necessarily, I, mean, I think that you can do self-improvement. You're like, I got a problem. I want to fix it. And, and so, so you look in the back in, in the past and then you look to the future. And so you have sort of like a, like a, a like a, a direction. And I think that's good. But I also think it's important to say, look, no, right now I should do this. Like right now, regardless of the outcome, because at the end of the day, we're all going to die. And I don't know how we're going to die or why we're going to die, but maybe I'll die because someone throws a kettlebell on my foot. Right? <laughs> it, uh, who knows? Right. But but I need to you need to realize that you do these things because they have benefits not only in the future, but right now for your nervous system, for how you feel, for everything. And sometimes that right now is like right now needs to be hard. Right. You, know, you sometimes you have to go through difficult things. And because we are so comfortable, because we are so numb to the world, we're not doing that. We're not doing difficult things. And um, and it's so, so, so easy to um, to be the same. And which is why we also get so angry when sort of big political storms happen uh, that are out of our control, because we just feel um uh, so insecure, so out of control, so, um, you know, awash that that anxiety beats us, us up. And then we write something angry on Twitter to make someone else angry, to make someone else angry to, and, and, and add nauseam to infinity. Yep. And at the end of the day, your message of just being kind is probably what all of us could focus on more, which I absolutely love. Mm -hmm. Scott Carney, this has been an amazing conversation. And uh, yes, you are one of the most interesting people I've ever talked to in my life. Tell people where people can go that. to find you and connect with you and your work. So these days I'm putting almost everything on YouTube and I would suggest go check out my YouTube channel. It's SG Carney. Uh, and I'm putting sort of regular updates every Monday. Uh, on it. And I, I basically, I'm abandoning ship on, on uh, Instagram, which is where I used to be on it. Wow. I left Facebook a while ago. And I just feel like I'm able to, to talk 
uh, at length more, like being limited by one minute and like a cool dance. It was just, too, I couldn't do it. I just cannot do that. So I'm putting a lot of effort into YouTube lately. And so hopefully that continues. Um, also, I have so many books and uh, I think four or five books, six books, some, some number of books I've written. Um, so there's that stuff. And I have websites, SG Carney or what's my website? ScottCarney.com. That's hard to remember. Um, That's why we have Google. And so you can get... Yeah, yeah, you can check, yeah, check the Google. I'm there. I promise you. Everywhere I'm there, but I really, where I'm mostly is YouTube these days. Awesome. That's great. We will make sure we link to that in the show notes. Scott Carney, thank you again so very much for all of your journeys, for taking the approach of writing these books, not as a bystander, but as a participant, which I don't think I would have done myself, but you did a really great job doing that. And we really appreciate all your content and everything that you're putting out and lessons that people can take and apply in their lives. So thank you so very much for everything you do. And thank you for taking time to appear on our show today. Absolutely, man. Thanks so much. Absolutely. It was an honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. As always, thank you so very much for listening to Boundless Body Radio. It's really inspiring and amazing to see some of the reviews that we have been getting and also to receive so many messages and emails about how these episodes have improved our listeners' lives. And so thank you so very much. We are so happy to bring these episodes to you and provide them for free. And we really hope that they help you in your life. Uh, We have just passed two major milestones, which is absolutely mind-blowing to me. And basically, we did both of these in pretty much the exact same day. We have just passed 100,000 downloads worldwide of Boundless Body Radio, and we have just launched our 250th episode, which is absolutely amazing. Like I said, I never imagined we could reach that many people. We always want to keep you updated on things that we're doing on our website. So if you go to myboundlessbody.com, you can always see what we're up to. This month, we have a link that you can go and schedule a functional movement screen, which we do virtually over Zoom. A functional movement screen is a series of seven different movements and three different clearing tests, which is designed to find weak links in the body, such as muscle imbalances and joint stability issues. It's a really great tool for discovering inefficient movement. And even if you're not experiencing pain in certain areas of your body, it's something that can prevent injury later on. Some muscles need to be stretched, some need to be strengthened, and we can help you create a plan around that so that you can stay healthy and continue to move well for the rest of your life. So again, you can go and schedule that at myboundlessbody.com. You will also see the other services that we offer. You can always schedule a complimentary 30-minute consultation with us to really chat about anything that you like. And remember, if you are enjoying Boundless Body Radio, please take a minute, give us a rating or review on Apple. It really helps get this passion project out to other people. And thank you again for tuning into Boundless Body Radio.